heads up here at the top. Today's show is a conversation about what it's like in a hospital in Gaza. The conversation's pretty raw, but it's also really important. I hope you can keep listening. Seema Jelani has a system when she travels for work. She keeps voice memos on everything she sees. Seema's a doctor, a pediatrician. She is used to taking a lot of notes by hand. But her job takes her to conflict zones. She works for the International Rescue Committee. At a certain point, she realized talking into her phone was just easier. I do have so many, and um, I used to, um, when I would do this previously, uh, actually uh, transcribe all of them. Huh. But um, uh, right now, I, I don't have the time and the mental uh, bandwidth right now to do it. Dr. Jelani's most recent memos are from Gaza. Last month, she went to Al-Aqsa Hospital to help out. She started recording right away. What I'm seeing here is children lying on the ground, um, double amputation on one child, um, and there are no beds available, so people are literally just on the ground. Um, Do you listen back? No. I, I try not to, unless I'm in a very, very supported and nurturing environment, um, because they will take me right back into that moment. That feels very close. All in all, Dr. Jelani was in Gaza for a couple of weeks, trying to give a bit of relief to Palestinian healthcare workers who were barely holding it together. At one point in these recordings, Dr. Jelani talks about standing in the ER next to one colleague who had broken down in tears after watching both his brother and his best friend die in front of him. But then it was on to the next tragedy. At one, at one point yesterday, I looked up and someone was holding a boot. And I was very confused. Why is someone walking around the resuscitation room holding a boot? And then I looked at the rest of the boot and I realized that the, inside the boot, they were actually holding someone's leg up in the air. And at one point, one of the doctors asked, whose body part is that? Is it this patients or that patients. We didn't even know whose leg it was. And it just was an indicator for me of how low the bar had gone. You said this one thing in one of your voice memos that really struck me. You said even the lives we could have saved were just hopeless. And this struck me because you do not seem like a hopeless person. You, for two decades, you've gone in and out of war zones. And I think to do that work, you do have to be hopeful in some way that what you're doing will shift the needle. Did something inside you change from your time in Gaza? I don't think anyone could emerge from the Gaza that I saw and not come out changed. I think what I was referencing in that moment is even the lives we could have saved, what is there for them to go back to? So what about the orphans? What about the widows? What about 
the babies, uh, you know, who are, have no surviving family members, that might be the biggest struggle and one that is least in my control. Today on the show, two weeks inside one of Gaza's besieged hospitals. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. Dr. Seema Jelani was part of a team of healthcare workers who headed to Gaza on Christmas Day. There was a high-risk obstetrician, an anesthetist, surgeons, an emergency care doctor, and herself. She was so straightforward about this work when we spoke. So I asked, before she crossed from Egypt to Gaza, did she have any hesitation about making the trip? Yes, I did. Yes, certainly. I'd been to Gaza twice before. I've been in 2005 prior to uh, Israeli disengagement from Gaza and then in 2015, right after the 2014 incursion or war. Um, And so I have been anchored in the West Bank and Gaza for 19 years, going in and out several times of the West Bank uh, over those those two decades. I knew that I needed to be connected to it. I knew that I had something to offer in terms of knowledge. And I knew that um, I had a strong emotional connection to the Palestinian people themselves and had friends built over many, many years um, who had been in touch with me as well. How did you prepare? Was there a way that you prepared differently than you had for previous trips? Yes, very much so. Just in terms of um, uh, making sure things had been managed for my family, should anything happen to me. Um, I do that anyway, but this was a very tenuous case in particular and uh, making sure. Um, And then in terms of sort of mental preparation, I leaned on uh, the strength of Palestinian doctors and nurses and uh, people in healthcare that I knew were living through this situation and was very cognizant that I was only there for two weeks and had the privilege simply by virtue of being of where I was born that I would exit. So really understanding my privilege in that way um, kind of helps put things in perspective. Describe your first day of work. I know you said it took a couple days to get across the border. Once you got there, did you go directly to the hospital? No, we um, went to our guest house and uh, we didn't reach until afternoon, I believe, late afternoon, because um, the road from Rafa to our, where we were staying is is not that far, but traffic was insurmountable. People had placed all their worldly belongings in cars and you you would see pets and cats and dogs and families and babies falling asleep in the in the vans and women pregnant women holding a lot holding on outside of the truck all carrying blankets and mattresses and um so just that scene alone before we even got to the hospital was quite striking to me all of these people all of that traffic It was because everyone was trying to flee where Dr. Jelani was headed. The area surrounding the hospital had been seeing more and more violence. When her team finally got there, the need for care was overwhelming. People were being brought in by donkey cart, if they were lucky, by ambulance, by family members in their arms, on mattresses, or like homemade 
mattresses, um, if they're lucky with a car, because fuel is, is, is precious. The first day in the emergency room, um, you know, in the first few hours of work, I treated an approximately one-year-old boy. Um, his right arm and leg had been blown off by a bomb, what we would call a traumatic amputation. He had a blood-stained diaper, uh, but there was no leg below, and uh, he lay on the ground because no stretchers were available. This one-year-old patient uh, uh, was bleeding into his chest cavity, so we needed a chest tube so he wouldn't asphyxiate on his blood, and the orthopedic surgeon managed to bandage and stop the bleeding and stop the hemorrhaging. And I, this is a case in the U.S. that would have been in what we call a stat OR case, so just take him up to the operating room immediately. But the orthopedic surgeon said he wasn't going to be able to do that right now because there were more pressing emergencies, which sort of begs the question. I try to wonder what was what could be more pressing than a one-year-old with no hand, no leg, and is essentially choking on his blood. Do you know what happened to that child? No, I've, try, I, I've tried to track him down endlessly. When you were on the ground, like what was your day-to-day -day schedule? I think I read you were there from like 9 a.m. till 3 p.m., which surprised, so it surprised me a little bit because I was like, oh, I thought maybe you'd be working like 12-hour shifts the way you do in a hospital. But then you explained that there was like simply a concern for your safety. Right, right. After dark, certainly. So the night before our movements, um, we would have to what they call deconflict our movement the night before, and the Israeli authorities may or may not grant that deconfliction. Oh, so you'd have to tell the Israeli authorities at this time we will be going on this road for this purpose. Correct. Please don't bomb us. Correct. And deconflicted is sort of a, a strange term for it, in, in my opinion, because um, there may or may not be coordination of deconfliction around airstrikes or ground strikes. Um, it can be, uh, quote unquote, deconflicted, but if there's a suspected target nearby, um, they, they might bomb the target nearby and any blast injury that occurs from that could result in death or disability. And um, so it, it's, a, it's a challenging context. And so we would do that the night before and then uh, depart somewhere at eight o'clock and then uh, get to the hospital and work in as many daylight hours as possible. It was certainly limited. We all, all our, the clinicians felt like we wanted to spend a tremendous amount of time there, much more time, um, but also felt that uh, it was important for our MAP staff, so our Medical Aid for Palestinian staff, for them who accompanied us and made this mission possible, they had to return to their families as well. So it was also out of concern for them because they really were making uh, really some big sacrifices for us to accompany us. As a pediatrician, some of what Dr. Jelani was doing in Gaza involved working with new mothers. I think one, one moment that really stands out to me is I was just uh, in doing pediatric wards and counseling new mothers on breastfeeding and um, and, you know, sort of smoke outside of the window would pop up. I can just imagine being a new mother in that situation and having a couple of different responses. Like, I can imagine seeing the bombs going off and being like, what the hell am I even doing here? Like, what, how useful is that? Like, I just need to survive. Like, I, uh, or I could see, like, 
really digging into like, this is my one job. I need to keep this baby alive. And like, I need to know everything about how to do that. How are the women you were with responding? The latter, 100% the total abject dedication and adoration of their children. How did you see that? I saw that with mothers and I saw that with fathers as well. A total engagement with me and asking questions, really smart questions around feeding, around new baby. And and what was so fascinating to me is the, the sense of community because Again, it's not like one patient has one room to themselves, six or seven are in the room when usually it should only be two or three. And so these mothers would gather around and listen. And then maybe maybe a mother that had had four children would chime in and say, oh, yes, yes, that's how you do it. Or, or let me give you this tip. And it became sort of this really incredible space for women to share, to share their experiences with one another and to commiserate, but also... I mean, there's nothing that can bring a smile to even in the absolute worst of situations than like a baby giggle or a baby <laughs> laughter or a squeal here. And so like, that's why I do pediatrics. It's because those are the moments, you know, that that really you can see the life force for which we are working right in front of you. Dr. Jelani and her team were scheduled to leave on January 8th after two weeks but as that date approached, conditions grew steadily more uncertain. In fact, right towards the end, even getting to the hospital became more difficult. By the end of the two weeks, our, um, we did not have morphine available. We did not have mainstays of medications available, which were already in short stock. Um, mass casualties became the norm uh, instead of one or two. That we were, they were almost constant. Um, it became unmanageable at the end. As time went on, um, the bombs were getting closer to the hospital. Gunfire certainly was going off nearby neighborhoods. Um, communication systems were patchy at best, and tensions were certainly becoming electric. And so one day, uh, it was out of my comfort zone, personally, um, to go into the hospital. And that's the day, actually, that a bullet went through the ICU. Uh, and then the next day, the road to the hospital was deemed unsafe for us to use. Following that, the Israeli military dropped leaflets designating areas around the hospital, around surrounding the hospital as a red zone. So given the recent history of attacks on medical staff and facilities, our team was unable to return and people in the area began evacuating in panic. So you had to leave, it sounds like, without even like saying goodbye to the colleagues you've been working with? Yeah, that was really, that was hard. And then communication systems were down, and so I've been able to reconnect with some of them, but not all of them. We had gotten really close with the nurses and the doctors and promised to take a, a group photo together and promised to, you know, sit together and map out what medications we might be able to support with. And um, we were unable to do that. and. That really, that really eats at me. We'll be right back after a quick break. For Dr. Seema Jelani, there are a couple of things that make what's happening in Gaza 
feel different. First of all, when she served in other dangerous places, places like Afghanistan, she always felt like the hospital was a safe place. Not so this time. She was also shocked by who her patients were in Gaza. Overwhelmingly, children. I don't expect to be of use as a pediatrician in a war zone, and I was extremely useful in this war because so many children had endured bomb blast injuries, penetrative trauma, uh, uh, blunt trauma, and uh, traumatic amputations and extreme burns from explosive devices. Um, at one point in our, what we would in America call a code room or um, basically where someone is actively dying and you are resuscitating them, um, four out of five of my patients were children. And to me, that's staggering. When I was reading about you and your past and your experience, one of the things I read about was that you, not so long ago, lived in Lebanon. And while you were there two or three years ago, um, your own daughter survived an explosion. And you, as a physician, had to kind of get her to care, make sure she was okay. It made me curious how that experience intersected with your work in Gaza. Because you'd been that mom with a kid who was injured and it was very scary. And you've also been the physician, you know, treating that child and with that mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are several patients. Um, and it, by the end of my time there, people would sort of, it would be almost a joke because my running question was, have they gotten pain medicine yet? Because that was the only thing that I cared about for my child. Hmm. And also having been a patient myself is that, that, you know, usually in normal circumstances, even if you can't do much as a doctor, you can usually provide some pain relief um, towards the end in Gaza. We weren't even able to do that, but that how that experience in Beirut affected me is that for every kid I saw, that was my question. And uh, people began to, associate that question with my voice. Uh, that was one of the first first and last question I'd always ask is what's our pain management plan? And so I, I certainly that affected me um, in that way because that's exactly what I was asking for for my daughter. I know you said you've been you've been trying to find the child who had lost two limbs and was on the floor and had blood in their chest cavity and you hadn't been able to. Is there anyone you have been able to connect with? Um, I have through physicians that know them because I'm in touch with the doctors and some of the nurses. So I do have sort of secondhand knowledge of how they are managing. But um, direct, no, because the, the it was such a chaotic and hectic situation that to be able to get contact information in the middle of all of all of the mass casualty was was really. Uh, an impossibility, but I have updates through through friends. The ones you are in touch with, what are they telling you about their lives now? It's it's almost a month later, almost. They've been dis displaced again. Some are in tents. Some are in makeshift tents 
Some are in shelters. Some are sheltering with family members. Um, sometimes the doctors would have their families come to the hospital and sleep because that, again, was supposed to be safe. That's obviously not the case for anymore, um, at least for this hospital. Is the hospital still functioning? So my understanding is there were uh, evacuation orders uh, for the hospital after or sometime in the midst of when we were leaving. And shortly thereafter, the fuel had, so the, I did recall seeing videos of the lights being out. I'm not sure if the fuel has been replenished. It sounds like uh, there are now people starting to show up again and are able to work. I don't know the exact uh, measure of how functional it is. I don't know. You know, every article I read about the medical system in Gaza talks about it being on the brink of collapse. I wonder what you think it would take to say, no, actually, the medical system has collapsed, and whether you would take it that far. The only thing that has prevented total collapse of the medical and healthcare system is the valiance and the determination of the staff that continue to show up. And that's why I would wait before I would call it collapse. Um, but I would say that is that they have built the foundation and they are holding up a system. No system in the world was ever built to withstand this level of devastation. I worked in, and trained in one of the largest and busiest children's hospitals in the world. And even that hospital would struggle. We had every subspecialty known to man. We had uh, all the bells and whistles and modern technology one could ask for. That hospital even would struggle to sustain and provide care in the circumstances that Gaza is in right now. So if the question is, is, is it collapsing? Yes. Is it still somehow working? Also, yes, because of the miracle of the of the people of Gaza and the nurses and the doctors and all of the healthcare staff there. What would it take to avert a collapse? Immediate, sustained ceasefire. I think it's it's pretty easy. I don't think this is a, a hard or or complicated dilemma. You don't put a Band-Aid when someone is hemorrhaging, right, from their heart or brain or liver or, or major. You, you stop the bleeding. So stopping the bombing would make more sense. Dr. Jelani, I'm really grateful for your time and all the work that you've done. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me and for elevating these stories that, that need to get out. I, I appreciate your time. Dr. Seema Jelani is the Senior Emergency Health Advisor for the International Rescue Committee. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support what we're doing and who we're talking to is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out more. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. 
Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.